Okay, so I just want everyone to know that this song... Do, 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 do. <laughs> Not that song. Oh. <laughs> this song... <laughs> <laughs> this song is the second page's theme song. If this is your first time listening to the second page, you've probably never heard it before, but if you've listened to the past two episodes, you may have noticed it at the beginning of each. I just wanted to bring it to your attention because it's a really rad track. I mean, listen to it. of the music here it was written by my co-host sean hansen who is um actually in charge this week so sorry for taking over sean why don't you tell our listeners what's up thanks this is second page a podcast of amateur storytelling by amateur storytellers this week's episode is stories about road trips harris i want to go on a road trip i'm tired of new york (laughs) Well, you should go on a road trip then. Yeah, we're laughing because this is scripted, but like that's the actual <laughs> truth. I really do want to go on a road trip. I'm tired of New York. <laughs> um, well, you should come with me. I I would love to go on a road trip. All right, where to? Um, let's go to Hawaii. That's not a good decision for a road trip. <laughs> I was thinking like Boston. <laughs> That, that might be a better road trip. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. I'll bring the music. <laughs> All right, should we get started? Yeah, I think so. So the first story this week is from me, Harris Laparoff. And I do feel like I should say off the bat that it's not really a road trip story because there's no road in it. But it is a story about a long trip. Um, also, I just wanted to give a heads up that there are some brief mentions of rape jokes, depression, and suicidal thoughts in the story. Sean, want to do the thing? Sure. Our next story is from my co-editor, Harris Slapperoff. I met Nick on the California Zephyr train from Emeryville, California, to Chicago, Illinois. I had already met Peng, a Laotian life insurance agent from Richmond, California, and Adriana, a sophomore geology student at U of Chicago, when Nick boarded in Reno, Nevada. Adriana had been keeping her eyes open for wild horses, and we finally spotted a cluster shortly after departing the station. Oh, yeah, the horses, Nick said, pulling up a seat next to us in the lounge car. They're like raccoons around here. They keep trying to get rid of them, but they can't seem to do it. You're from around here, I asked? Yep, just got on in Reno, headed for Baltimore. I've always relished travel and even the act of being in transit for long periods of time. I think this is an affection that was seeded in my childhood by long road trips on family vacations, and cemented by one of my first serious relationships being with a girl who lived in the far northern tip of California, 
eight hours away by Greyhound from Oakland. So when I had a few months between jobs in 2013, I decided to spend some of that time crisscrossing the country on long-distance trains and buses. I was traveling around the country primarily to visit my friends, but many of my most interesting and meaningful experiences were with the strangers I met on those trips. One of the amazing things about travel, and train travel in particular, is meeting strangers and hearing their stories. I was surprised at how easily I met strangers and how quickly they opened up their life stories when I started being open to it. I spent a lot of time then thinking about the importance of being able to converse with a variety of people who are different from me. I still think about this a lot. Having grown up in a more or less homogenous environment of middle-class, liberal, college-educated city dwellers, there's a lot of people who I never learned how to interact with, how to converse with, and how to disagree with. And while it's easy to say just interact with them like people, I've never found it to be that simple. Cultural and political differences create awkwardness and minefields of conversation. I had often avoided interacting much with people whose lives were significantly different from my own, but I wasn't proud of it. I didn't think it was a very ethical or compassionate approach to the world. A couple weeks earlier, I had run into an amazing coincidence while riding the Coast Starlight from Portland, Oregon to Emeryville, California. It was evening, and I was sitting alone at one of the lounge car tables, writing out postcards to friends. Behind me, a group of three white kids, more or less my age, clearly new friends, were discussing the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, which had just passed. At the table across the aisle from them, an older black man turned to them and said, Pardon me for interrupting, but I want to ask a question of you. Who, besides Martin Luther King, do you think was the most significant figure in the civil rights movement? Towards the end of the ensuing conversation, the older black man began to tell his life story. He talked about how he admired Malcolm X. He said that during the civil rights movement, he had changed his name and taken an African last name, Emeka. He said that two of his children grew up to be college professors. At this point, I turned around to say, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. Where do your children teach? Well, one of them teaches at Oberlin College. Oh my god, I interrupted. I took a class with your son. Back on the California Zephyr, I was relating this story to another new friend, Peter. I wanted to share an example of how small the world is when you ride trains, and how many connections there must be that we never even discover. Peter was an older white man from the woods of Oregon, traveling with a woman who seemed to be his wife. When I finished my story, he said, You know, people have twisted the civil rights movement and what it meant these days. They've made it mean what they want it to mean, and forgotten what it was really about. I nodded, despite a sinking feeling in my stomach. A statement as general as that I could actually agree with. Towards the end of his life, MLK was preaching a politics of revolution, something more than just law reform. He was calling on his followers to question the foundation upon which American society rests. This, I believe, is a message that is often omitted when studying him. And so I nodded in agreement, despite my dread for what this man was about to say. 
Behind him, I saw his wife roll her eyes and then move to leave, returning back to their seats. No, I'm sorry, I've got to say my piece. I can't keep quiet about this any longer. I mean, Martin Luther King was a preacher, wasn't he? The civil rights movement happened in the churches. And as he began a sermon, I stared out the window at the passing countryside. part of learning to interact with people whose lives are different from my own is discovering how to handle points of conflict. My politics lean far to the left, often radically, and I spent a lot of time in college immersing myself in a politics which emphasizes standing alongside those whose lives are systematically shortened and whose autonomy is circumscribed. I wanted to build a strong core around those beliefs before subjecting myself to the taming influence of larger American society. And then I was out in the world, meeting strangers, interacting with people whose beliefs differed from mine, who believed in gun rights, who believed that the right to make jokes about rape is a sacred one, who thought that the Obama administration was running the country into the ground who told me that someday I would find Jesus, yes, that did turn out to be where Peter's lecture was going, and so on. I kept finding these points of conflict which were also small decision points. Should I speak up, or should I bite my tongue? Later, Nick and Peter had a conversation about searching the desert for metal relics. We were passing through Utah with its vast desert marked with strange lunar rock formations, and they were talking about scouring the sand for old aluminum cans, railroad ties, and bullet casings. They talked about melting bullet casings down for metal or refilling them and selling them anew. They talked about gun rights. The phrase, when you criminalize guns, only criminals will have guns, was uttered. I bit my tongue. I mean, said Peter, there will always be criminals. Some people are just bad. Reform doesn't work, you can see that because of how many end up right back in prison after they're released. Well, I said, letting the filter slip, that's because prison isn't designed to reform people. That's not its purpose. Now hold on, Nick jumped in. I think maybe you two are saying the same thing. But we weren't. I think part of my fascination with Nick as a character, out of the cast of characters I met on that train, is that he was broken and he knew it. The paradox of making friends on a train is that you can know them very intensely for a very short time. Your overlap in life is limited, bounded by your departure and arrival stations. When Nick first boarded the train, he told me he had brought a bottle of Southern Comfort on board to drink. I've got years of experience as a functioning alcoholic, he said, with no hint of irony. He told me and Peng that he was an animator and showed us a couple of what he called his less offensive animations. They were the variety of nonsensical, slightly off-putting flash animations my friends and I used to love in middle school. When I broached a conversation about whether making rape jokes was okay, he prefaced his defense of rape jokes darkly with, Listen, I don't want to get into my whole family history, but let's just say, I've been there. He said, Making rape jokes is my way of making people think about how fucked up it is. 
I couldn't agree with that, but I listened, and I bit my tongue. Nick told me that he had lived in Baltimore for a year, but he'd been fucked up with severe depression and suicidal tendencies, so he'd moved back home to Reno for a while to get better. He was feeling better now and was on his way back out to Baltimore to give it another go. Later, during our conversation with Peter, the topic turned to religion, as I was gathering it often did with Peter, and Nick abruptly stood up and held out his hand. You know what? It's been great talking to you, but I'm gonna go now. You had me until you started talking about religion. Peter said, It's been great talking to you. No, wait just a second. Hear me out. I was just like you at your age. No, you don't know me. I've been there. I've given religion a shot, and you know what? Religion rejected me. Peter, I was like you when I was your age. My father taught me... Nick, see, that's the difference between you and me. You had a father to teach you things. I never had a father. I never had a family. All I'm saying is I realized somewhere along the way that we have to treat our fellow humans with compassion, and that's what Jesus taught me. Yeah, but look at all those Christians who have done terrible things in the name of Christianity. Those weren't Christians. They might say they were, but they weren't Christians. Look, all I'm saying is, the Founding Fathers wanted to give us freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. I listened and held my tongue. Later, while we were hanging out with Peng, Adriana, Rafael, a quiet Pakistani man roughly my age, on vacation from Seattle, Nick brought over a new friend. Guys, he said, meet Carson. Carson was a 30-year-old man from Durban, South Africa, but he had an even younger feel to him. As the six of us hung out and chatted in the lounge car late into the night, three of us, myself included, getting drunk on Southern Comfort and Dr. Pepper, the other three remaining mostly sober, Carson related his life story to us. Carson was ethnically ambiguous. He had dark skin and looked like he could be either black or Indian South African, and quite possibly some combination. He said he grew up in a strict Hindi household in Durban, but he never really took to it and never felt like Durban was home. When he was 21, he moved to the United States to find somewhere that felt like home, and he had been moving from place to place ever since, still looking. He was on the train now, he said, meeting someone in Boulder City. It was unclear whether he meant Boulder City, Nevada, or Boulder, Colorado, and he didn't seem to know himself, but either way, he was either far past his stop or on the wrong train, or both. When we pointed this out, he didn't seem too concerned. He just made up his mind to follow the train to its terminus in Chicago. When I cracked open a bottle of wine, the topic of wine tasting came up and Carson asked what Napa Valley was like. Would someone like him get along there? Nick tried to tell him how racist Napa Valley is, while Peng, who was a resident of the North Bay herself, tried to insist that it isn't so much racist as it is classist. Around the third time that Nick felt the need to casually reassert that he and whoever he happened to be sitting next to, in this case it was me, were not gay, Peng said, We know already. 
When I mentioned that queer politics were something I thought and talked about a lot, Nick looked surprised and then pensive. When the topic turned to gay marriage, Nick said, You know what? The last few times I voted against gay marriage, and it's not because I have anything against gays. I was trying to look out for you guys. I didn't bother to correct him on my sexual orientation. I've been married. I know what it's like. But next time, I'm just going to vote for it and y'all can figure it out for yourself. You've been married? Pang said, surprised. Later, I thought about telling Carson that he'll never find somewhere that feels like home until he can settle down in one place and build his own community. And maybe not even then, and that's okay. Not everyone needs one place to call home. I thought about telling Nick to seek outside help for his drinking and his emotional traumas. But, really, what could I do? It's not my job to fix these short-term friends I make on the trains, nor would I have the time, energy, or authority to do so if it were. I get to know them for a day and an evening, and then we part ways. All I can do is listen. I've been sleeping with the lights on, buried in regrets, breaking into sweats, naked as a falling leaf. Well, it's a natural reaction. Driven to distraction, quiet the ghosts will never meet. Oh, and I don't know where they go when they vanish in the corners of my eyes. And I don't know why, I don't know if they stay below or rise up to the sky. But I'm letting go. That last story was by Harris Laparoff, founder of The Second Page, DC resident and restless spirit. <laughs> what a pretentious bio. I know, I, I think that every time I read it, but that's okay. Our next story by Ruthie Byers. Last summer, during one of my busiest weeks, my friend Lissa messaged me on Gchat. Lissa, are you in the Bay Area this week? Me, yes, are you? I'm busy, but I want to see you. Lissa, I've been talking with Ash about coming up for the weekend and going for a road trip and a beach barbecue. I just had to postpone my big trip and I really need to get out of LA. How's your Friday night through Sunday? My Friday night through Sunday was awful. My sweetie was visiting, leaving on Saturday, in part so we could have a serious relationship conversation. I had a fiddle-playing gig Sunday afternoon. The day before this conversation, my company had reorganized and put me in charge of a new team. I in no way had time to go on a road trip this weekend. Nor would I ever want to go on a road trip, especially not with Lissa and Ash. I can enjoy a car ride if it has a destination, but Lissa and Ash are the sort of people who will leave home with something in mind that they want to find, and wander around until they find it, doubling back as many times as necessary. I'm a pretty punctual person, but not Lissa and Ash. My mind drifted back to the time in college that I waited for them at a frozen yogurt place for an hour before going home by myself. I knew that if I went, I'd probably spend most of it impatient, annoyed, and stressed about getting back from my gig. 
but I said yes anyway. I'm not sure whether I said yes, just because I wanted to see Lissa, or whether I had some premonition that something else was up and I needed to be there. We planned for the three of us to meet at my house on Saturday. When Lissa arrived, she sat down on my bedroom floor. How are things going? I asked. Awful. I had known that Lissa had health problems recently, but the last we had talked about it, she had been annoyed and worried, but not seriously inconvenienced. Over the next hour, I learned that they had worsened, to the point that she spent most of her time exhausted, and was no longer able to do the things she cared about, instead shepherding her energy so that she could get groceries and go to her doctor's appointments. Her trip had been delayed not for logistical reasons, as I had assumed, but because she simply didn't have the energy to go. So she had asked her friends to go on a road trip with her, and as much as I was not looking forward to it, I was suddenly very glad I had said yes. Our trip was every bit as patience trying as I expected. We left hours later than planned, since Ash showed up late, and we still had to get food for the trip. We drove south to Santa Cruz, where it quickly became apparent that if we wanted a campsite on the coast, we would have had to reserve one weeks ago. So we drove back north, and just as it was getting dark, found ourselves a cold beach with no facilities and an unclear camping policy. We burnt most of the sausage we got for dinner, and ate the last few around our dying fire, until the three of us retreated to my two-person tent to stay warm. In the morning, we ate a mediocre breakfast at a cafe, and then drove up and down along the coast, doubling back twice looking for a sunny beach. In every objective way, it was pretty horrible. But when I think about that trip, I don't remember any of that. I remember talking about poop and laughing as we warmed up around the breakfast table at the cafe. I remember Lissa quizzing me on what colors I liked to wear together, so she could shop for me online. I remember the three of us sitting in my two-person tent and getting to debrief my relationship conversation and my work-life changes. And I remember listening as Lissa told us how scared and upset she was by the way her health was disrupting her life. I remember running back and forth to the car from the campsite so she didn't have to. I remember carrying her across a little lagoon to explore a sea cave when we finally found a sunny beach on Sunday morning. All the annoyances of that trip were lost in the things I cared about being with my friends and supporting them when they needed it. Ruthie Byers is a dancer, fiddler, and software engineer living somewhere between Oakland, California and Somerville, Massachusetts.
Our next story is by Michael Dragelis. In a local library on a Thursday evening, I find myself standing alone in front of the audiobook section. I'm a regular here. I know what authors are usually available, which genres are more represented. Stephen King is predictably regular, though I still can't find the first book in the Dark Tower series. Margaret Atwood shows up sometimes near the front, a rarer find. But I'm looking for something special this time. Something out of the ordinary, something different than my usual fare. It's a special occasion, after all. I drift my finger along the spines. In the S's, I spot Steinbeck, the Grapes of Wrath. Ah, I think. I've heard of this one. I check the back. 21 hours and change in length. Yep, I think. That will do fine. I remember sitting in my cube at work, alone in my empty row, leaning back in the ergonomic chair and staring out the wall of windows into the early morning. The view is almost entirely masonry, a high-end hotel, a prestige apartment complex, and the cindered-colored parking lots sprawl nearly the length of the building. But beyond it, between the cracks and just above the rooftop air conditioning units, you can see the swish and sway of trees. In the spring, they're a bright green wave. In autumn, a rustic patchwork of growing fire. I wondered where those trees went to. I wondered what they hid. I was the kid that stared at the fields and woods out of the window during car rides. I saw old barns in the distance. I found beaten dirt roads off the highway flat top. I saw cows grazing among the wreck of a fallen billboard that someone, ages ago, had built. I was the college student that imagined pulling over the car, climbing the fence, and walking to the horizon. I looked at maps, I read place names, and thought about the people there. A constant refrain of curiosity. What's out there? You're going alone? My mother looked at me worriedly from across the table. My laundry tumbled in the dryer in the next room. I promised I would call every night. Later, my father and I stood over the dining room table with a road atlas. We touched the map with our fingers, charting the course. Easy chair adventurers. I'm jealous, son. He grinned to himself, gazing over the map. I saw an old fire flickering there, felt it resonate with my own. Surely I had inherited this wanderlust from somewhere. misty when I drove into Missouri for the first time. The backseat cooler rattled with ice, keeping cold the water and deli meat I'd stored there earlier. On my passenger seat, a jumbo-sized container of trail mix shook gently. The Joad's journey west had only started on the audiobook. I found a Walmart in the backwoods and wandered into the electronics section. My camera battery had long since died, and I found it a replacement among the aisles. I promised to take plenty of pictures. Later, I pulled into the best western I had reserved and smashed my left middle finger in the car door as I closed it. After dinner, I returned to my hotel room, finger bandaged and aching. By now, I had called my parents and turned on the air conditioning. The TV was on, but mute. The curtains hung open. 
Outside, the view bristled with trees. I sat on the bed and watched. I was completely alone. This is what I had come to confront. I'd carried the feeling for several months. As an introvert, time by myself is valuable. But even as I enjoyed the moments of solitude in my apartment, there had been a lingering emptiness. I had a podcast constantly filling my ears. I kept busy with cooking or reading or games. Distraction was a reflex, and the muscle was taut and strong. Anything to escape from my own head. The next day in Kansas, I followed the tire tracks of the Joads over the endless flatlands. As I drove along munching trail mix, I thought of such people in the aftermath of the Great Depression traveling west along these very roads looking for work. I thought of pioneers traveling these fields in wagons and carts. I went further in an hour than they did in a few days of hard travel. On the other side of the road, a small herd of American buffalo grazed in a pen. Once, herds ten times that size poured over the horizon like a living tide. They passed from my window in moments. I stopped for gas at a town whose billboard claimed it was the birthplace of Dwight D. Eisenhower. The exit was a damp rash of fast food chains and strip malls. I left without speaking to anyone. A storm moved in from the north as the day drew on. Thunderheads the color of a forest sparked with lightning and shook my car with a torrent of rain and wind. Other cars started driving with their emergency lights, tiny yellow flashes and a wash of gray and green and smoke. My cell phone started to ring. Where are you? my mother asked. Kansas, almost to Colorado, I answered. It's storming. It looks bad, buddy, she said. I could tell she was trying not to sound panicked. There's a tornado warning. When I finally pulled into the hotel, the sky was spitting a mixture of rain and hail. Drenched at the check-in counter, I asked the receptionist, a high school senior girl working part-time, I guessed, what I should do in case of the tornado coming our way. She handed me a crisp piece of Best Western letterhead indicating that in such an event, guests should duck and cover in the lobby hallway. Isn't there a basement? I asked. The receptionist shrugged and wished me a nice stay. It had been a rough few months. By now, I was a few years on the job. It was challenging work, something new every day. But as the seasons passed, I felt I had few friends there. I joined a book club. I met with an ultimate frisbee team. I tried to be a coffeehouse regular, but nothing really clicked. Sometimes I would go a whole day without speaking to someone, coming back to an empty apartment to whittle away time before doing it all again. I just wish there was someone I could spend time with, I told a friend late one evening. I feel like I'm collapsing. It's scaring me. What about people that live nearby? They asked. What about your family? The thought made me more anxious, anking for contact but too scared to reach out to anyone. I felt trapped. The loneliness, the thoughts of others, 
the idiot mistakes I'd made, the mistakes I'd yet to make. It all felt so huge, so crushing. I curled up on my bed that night and watched it rain outside until I fell asleep. The hotel was still standing in the morning, and I left after breakfast. Within the hour, the sign welcomed me to Colorado. Mountains rose in the distance, and they would be there for days. There was a misstep in my planning. Only a few hours after leaving, I arrived at my next hotel stop way before check-in time. The town gripped to a rail line and the road to the highway, all the businesses and buildings growing out like capillaries from the vein. I walked around the campus of a community college, eating trail mix. Then I paced in another Walmart and read an entire book there off the shelf. I sat on the hood of my car in the parking lot and stared out at the sandy mountains on the horizon. Take a picture, I thought. But when I got my camera, I found that the problem had not been a dead battery. The camera itself was broken. There would be no pictures on this trip. For a long moment, I found myself stunned. And at some point, I'm sure I was upset. But it seemed small after a moment. So I brought up my hands, framing the scene with my two thumbs and four fingers like a director on set. Click, I said, and smirked to myself. One for the vault. At breakfast the next morning, the news reported that the town of Moore, Oklahoma, had all but been destroyed by an EF-5 tornado. The storm was part of the same system that had passed over me just days earlier. Two billion dollars in damage, they said, followed by sound bites of people describing the carnage. Footage of emergency personnel digging through the wreckage, already rebuilding. After driving over the Great Continental Divide, I stopped in a vibrant small town. They had a coffee house, a chocolate shop. In a small alley, I found the entrance to a tiny bookshop. Well, aren't you a tall one? An old woman tall from behind the counter. That's me, I said with a smile. They had an old hardback of the Grapes of Wrath, but I left it there and politely said goodbye. It was another day and another long drive towards Arizona. The landscape was the arid twin of Kansas, bumpy fields of pale green shrubs and rocks the color of old bronze. Every once in a while, a row of houses would drift by, surrounded by a broken fence and a windswept pile of discarded junk. The homes looked as parched as the landscape, as if the soil and stones had slowly choked the foundation and whispered like the desert to the mortal man-made shelter. Who lives here, I wondered. Who helps these people? Another few hours ran by, and the land baked to a craggy russet red. I drove over a small hill, and a gargantuan spire of rock appeared out of nowhere. The world seemed peppered with these natural statues, planted with seeming purpose in the middle of nowhere. They stood like the heads of guardians, their faceless features watching as I wandered by. In the late afternoon, I arrived at my destination. I left my dust-stained car and walked to the crest of the hill. As I did, I saw the peaks come into view. 
The back of a titanic red elephant crested my vision. The spires of two gloved hands reached into the sky. Far in the distance, a castle of pure red stone towered over a blasted pink field. The world above was a cloudless blue, and the earth below the red of fired clay. From my position, I spied people climbing amongst the bases of these monolithic rocks, tiny people away from their tiny cars, playing on the feet of giants. The wind blew in my ears. I stared out to the horizon in silence. Monument Valley yawned open in welcome. There's a concept in Romanticism that I particularly love. The Romantics were a conceited bunch. They believed that the poet was a necessary component to society because only poets could plumb the very depths of human feeling. It was their responsibility to feel so deeply and to commit that experience to the page so that others, less sensitive people, could approximate that experience. Naturally, this evolved from simply ruminating on the grandeur of the physical to the grandeur of the spiritual. They became obsessed with the notion of concepts that the mind could approach but never attain, experiences that struck both awe and terror in the same moment. This became the idea of the sublime. This is the beauty of a sky-spanning thunderstorm, the wonder of staring at the night sky and imagining the infinite. They are at once loud and silent, all-encompassing and almost unbearably intimate. Here, after days of travel, I stood on that ridge and felt the sublime of the valley wash over me like a tide. How many times had the world turned for these rocks to develop and endure? What forces were powerful enough to make this land what it was? What had occurred here before I was born? What would occur here after I died? I gazed upon petrified time and felt my relieving insignificance. I walked among these colossi as if through a cathedral, and when I finally turned back to go home, I left something behind with them. The Jodes made their faithful trip to California and discovered the only cause worth fighting for is helping one another. I passed towns struggling to make ends meet, places overrun with chains and concrete and dust. I drove back over the empty plains that used to brim with wildlife. But even in these places, you found people caring. You found them working, little by little. They do not shape their world, not entirely, but they keep going. Even alone, they are together. It isn't easy. It isn't without loss or pain. I looked down at my left middle finger, the one I smashed on that first day, and I remember this. A pale pink road draws up from the nail bed to the cloven tip of the finger. It's still there today. Travel leaves its mark on you. The next morning, I started back east. On the way, my phone rang again. Hi, buddy, Mom says. How are you feeling? Better, 
I say. I'm feeling better. On the dark roads of Montana There's a shadow in the dirt The whisper of a mountaineer In a ragged flannel shirt He walks the stony hillsides With his mandolin in hand but you'll never see his face around this long forgotten land And he hides beneath the veil of the night Michael Dragelis is an alumni from Center College, class of 2010, and Northern Kentucky University, class of 2017. A collector of books, tea, and folklore, he works in Cincinnati, Ohio, to make textbooks cheaper for students everywhere. This last story is from me, Sean, and I want to give a quick content warning. Later on, I'll be discussing Alzheimer's, dementia, and some end-of-life topics, so feel free to skip ahead to the credit banter if this is something you want to avoid. Few things made me more popular at Oberlin than the fact that against all suggestions from the college and activist groups, I brought my car. Over the years I lived at Oberlin, I wound up driving people everywhere. The airport, the local mall, Toys R Us to pick up the latest Pokemon giveaway, Chipotle for last-minute burrito fixes, hospitals and ERs, camera stores, circus performances, leather conferences, rural New York, my first gay club, Italian restaurants just to eat the breadsticks. They were so good. Home back to Cincinnati and so many more places. As a shy extrovert at the time, this presented me a way to connect with other people and frequently foster relationships thanks to a fear of awkward silence. These are a set, a series of moments on the road in college that stick with me to this day. They're grouped together by who was on the road trip with me. First, my friend Anna, then a car full of foodies, and finally, me alone. My Latvian American friend Anna's mother taught her tradition that she called sitting for the road. Each time before we banded together with another Cincinnati native to trek back home, we approached the parking lot and then sat in silence on the ground, breathing out a momentary lapse acknowledging the bands between existing in one location and another. I finally met her mother at the end of that trip. She welcomed me into her home and served the hottest tea that I've ever burnt my mouth on. I was treated like a son for driving and for being a friend to her daughter. Over lunch with the same group, I became legendary for going to wipe my face too aggressively on a napkin, ripping through it with an astounding gasp. Oh! The receipt for the meal had the baffling closing words, delicious buffalo, written at the bottom. The car next to ours had a full set of bullhorns on the front. Not bullhorns like sirens, bullhorns like steer. Once, when stuck in traffic with her around a bend in the highway that bypassed Columbus, Anna and I combined our limited American sign language with interpretive dance to choreograph a waist-up dance to Black Eyed Peas' hit, My Humps. 
we were summarily spotted by the car next to us. We waved our finger at them, signing, Will you still be in love, Bay Bay? In love, Bay Bay. Over winter term, when the school gave in to the winters of the Great Lakes and shut down except for individual projects during the month of January, I began to shuttle a group of the most hardcore of us to and from Cleveland's Westside Market, a mecca of butchers, cheesemongers, farmers, and others selling nearly everything you would need for cooking, except for those items that we picked up from a nearby Asian market. One particularly snowy and blustery day brought iced roads and highways that nearly turned us back home. With a car full of people talking, listening to music, and ignoring the weather pitfalls, I felt our car begin to skid on the ice until it was clear we were out of control. The roar and din silenced immediately as I quickly turned into the parking lot of an abandoned Burger King, and we slid around the building and through the drive through and then directly back onto the highway where I regained control and drove away safely. Applause followed. A small snippet of the highway connecting us on the way back to the nearest Trader Joe's had a giant sign declaring it the Viking Parkway. Accordingly, we listened to Trollhammeron by the Finnish black metal band Finn Troll as loudly as we could stand until it was time to say goodbye to our new Viking friend. Once we finally arrived at Westside Market, we were confronted with the problem of parking in one of the busiest spots in Cleveland. After finally finding one spot, we noticed another car pulling out, offering yet another coveted spot. A truck was clearly waiting to take the place, but suddenly another car swerved in, cutting off the truck and taking up the vital parking space. This would have been trivial, but the truck driver immediately got out and pulled out a shotgun. Walking quickly, walking quickly, walk more quickly, come on! We did not look back as we rushed into the market. During my first years at Oberlin, I frequently went home out of homesickness, visiting my family and hometown friends every month or so as an excuse to avoid drinking culture and as a bigger excuse not to examine why I felt so insecure around people in college. Gradually, however, I began making these trips for my grandparents. My grandmother had begun exhibiting symptoms of Alzheimer's repeating herself frequently and starting to discuss end-of-life desires and reflect more deeply on memory. I felt a deep connection with my grandparents at this time and began to structure my trips around seeing them. To get home, a drive lasted four hours. To get back, another four. Doing this for brief one-day visits was grueling mentally, and I began to see them as rituals that I would perform. I listened to the same music there and back, down to knowing the exact timings between tracks, exits, and a solid 65 to 70 miles per hour. I began to listen through the layers of music for the smallest details over and over again, slowly internalizing them. I would arrive at home again, feeling as though I had regressed and become the person who grew up there not too long ago, a closeted, depressed, queer teenager. My room was largely unchanged, though slowly morphing into a storage facility filled with papers and nostalgia my father didn't want to dispose of, but didn't want nearby. Each trip, my grandparents would have stepped a bit further toward the void. My presence comforted and calmed them. 
My grandmother would tell me repeatedly how I resembled her brother Raymond, who had curly hair like mine and played the violin. Then one visit they stopped. We're not going to be here forever, and I just want to say that we're ready to go and grateful for every day we wake up to. I began to cry, and they were unfazed, a surprising moment when I expected my grandparents to fall quiet at my emotion. I'm serious. I just want you to know. This house means the world to us. We want to stay here as long as we can. They spoke a bit more. My grandmother was all too aware she was forgetting things and beginning to fall into the void of Alzheimer's, and yet she seemed to have come to accept this. It was funny. She accepted this so readily, and yet her children and grandchildren, myself included, could not bear the pain of this. The next visit, they repeated themselves more than before. Eventually, I graduated from college, and they were proud of me, but relied on my father to send a note. After they were moved from their home to a retirement community with assisted living, I knew they would be mourning. My grandfather had built his home from the ground up and lived in it most of his life. Assisted living was brutal, as nice as they tried to make it seem. No matter how decorated it was for Christmas, it was a waiting room for the eternal. More than that, the weight of their increasing age was now weighing on my father and his siblings tremendously. I no longer contributed to helping them as now I lived far away. They no longer remembered where I lived or recognized when I was home. My grandmother descended into dementia, beginning to yell and scream when people tried to get her to go to church or do everyday tasks. My grandfather didn't understand why his partner of more than 50 years would do this. He seemed incapable of accepting that his beloved could be missing while she stood there, and he would get angrier and angrier as he became frustrated at her. The last visit with them both, my brother and I sat besides my grandmother. My grandmother seemed to be more present. She recognized us. She knew we were together for Christmas. She took her first ever selfie with me, and we both giggled that it had taken her entire life to have that experience. I have no idea if she could tell what actually happened, but I don't think it mattered. She fell again after this, ultimately a few months later, when foolishly given medication to lower her already low blood pressure. She fell from the low blood pressure, hit her head, and died. My grandfather lost that day his partner of a lifetime. He fell silent, passing away a year later, the day before Christmas. All along these trips leading to the retirement home, something had begun to happen in the long drives back to Oberlin. In the South, they call it white line fever. In the North, it's highway hypnosis. In clinical psychology, the term is a dissociation, specifically dissociation in the face of trauma. This began happening again when I drove. The ritualistic listenings to the same songs reinforced this, grounding me at the ends of tracks at key moments in the highway. Near exit 65, I would pause and eat. Up until that point, I was largely aware of what I was doing. By exit 106, I would be entering the brief overlap with I-70, looping around the south side of Columbus. Starting at passing the 106A sign, Imogen Heap's Let Go from her collaboration as Fru Fru would last until the northern strip of highway that would end with exit 121, the final stop in Columbus. 
Then came the long nothingness, the detachment that ended an hour later and exit 186, Ashland. I slowly would ground again, driving the back roads near Ashland leading to Oberlin, though like I had been some sort of automata, these places existing as memories relived, and my thoughts and worries about myself, my depression, my identity, and more than this, my grandparents would be relived over and over. By the time I reached Oberlin, I would feel like directly falling out of the door onto the asphalt. I would have missed the weekend parties, having returned mid-afternoon on a Sunday. Students were nursing hangovers, and I largely felt like I'd been teleported from one existence to another. I was quieter, exposed, vulnerable, and still reeling from the emotional labor I so willingly and lovingly offered with each trip. I never shared exactly what went on during those trips home with other students and friends. This was my ritual, my load to bear. I wish that I had. This, combined with the stress of my parents' pre-divorce lives, then their divorce, led me to cope with a tremendous amount of pain on top of my classwork. These trips, though, because of the breaks offered through dissociation, became alluring and almost addictive, an escape that felt like intense inner work and made me more serious, drew me within myself, but ultimately caused pain. Yet they also brought me close to the end of life of my grandparents that helped raise me, and so I would continue my solitary road trips for all of college without regret. Sean Hansen is a software engineer living in Brooklyn, New York. When not programming, he's speaking at conferences about diversity and inclusion and co-editing this podcast. And that's all. That's our show this week. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at The Second Page or on Facebook by searching for The Second Page. Be sure to subscribe using whatever podcast app you prefer. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and now, as of this week, by popular demand, Google Play. Harris, only one person asked us to add Google Play. That's still popular demand. Uh, touche. Uh, well, we are still collecting. We're still collecting stories for our next episode, Winter, or any of our upcoming episodes. To check out the episode schedule and find out how to submit, visit our website, secondpage.org. Secondpage.org? We are not doing this again. <laughs> all right. <laughs> thanks to all of our storytellers, Harris Laparoff, Ruthie Byers, Michael Georgelis, and I guess me. We used music this week by Poddington Bear, Josh Woodward, and our own Sean Hansen. You can find links to these artists on our website, secondpage.org. Secondpage.org. Thanks for listening. Tune in in two weeks for stories about winter. Bye. Thanks.